Broadcasting from the 10 Hudson Square building, home of WNYC Radio here in Soho, New York, welcome to Brand On Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful, purpose-driven companies and organizations. Today, we're joined in studio by Brand On Purpose's first father and son duo, Mark and Joel Pollock, to talk about their journeys with nonprofit and philanthropy work. And actually, in studio today is Joel, and via Skype is Mark, because he's just recovering from unplanned shoulder surgery. We won't get into that story. He's okay, but he's been kind enough to join us remotely, so we can still have this discussion. And Joel is founder and CEO of Percent Pledge, a nonprofit organization management company that makes workplace giving and volunteering easy for companies, engaging for employees, and highly transparent for both increasing accessibility, sustainability, and measurability of corporate programs. Percent Pledge, which is based in Chicago, works with companies like Parking Reservation Service Spot Hero, helping 80% of employees support meaningful causes, including 26 charities. And inspired by the work of his father, Mark, Joel founded Percent Pledge to help young people make giving a bigger part of their lives. And as I said earlier, Mark is also here with us today remotely to talk about his work as president and CEO of the Giving Back Fund. Since its founding in 1997, when I was just 27 years old, the Giving Back Fund has served as a renowned national nonprofit organization that encourages and facilitates charitable giving by professional athletes, celebrities, high net worth individuals, existing nonprofit organizations, corporations, and anyone else who truly has a desire to give back. So clearly, this is a family of underachievers. Mark and Joel, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate thank it. Thank you so much. It's our pleasure. Again, I'm, I'm very excited to have you both here. There's so much to talk about. Giving back seems to be very synonymous with the Pollock. It's Pollock, right? Yes. The Pollock name. And Mark, I just want to start with you. Can you speak to what initially inspired you to start giving 10% of your annual income back to charities? Somehow, I learned early on that giving in human beings actually creates endorphins that make you feel better. And I wanted to feel better. It really is true that when you give and when you help others, it makes you feel better. You get more of a sense of purpose in life. And no matter what your income is, no matter how wealthy or poor you are financially, everybody on this earth can give something to somebody. And so whether it's 10% or 5% or 20%, there's no one, I believe, who can't afford or is unable to help somebody less fortunate than they. And I've just always grown up with that. I grew up very poor in Cleveland, Ohio. We didn't have a lot of money, but we helped others. And it's just something, I guess, that was in my DNA from an early time that that you help if you can. And once I realized that it makes you feel good, then I like to feel good. And I imagine, you know, because of your background in academic Holocaust studies, that probably has a little bit of an impact also on your worldview and, and what we're talking about? Well, I had you mentioned Holocaust studies, and I had the great blessing in my life to work for close to 40 years with Elie Wiesel, the um, Nobel Peace Prize laureate, Holocaust survivor and professor at Boston University, who had a profound influence on my life. When we get into the Giving Back Fund later, I'll explain to you how working with Ellie ended up leading to my founding the Giving Back Fund. But my earliest work in life was in Holocaust studies and trying to teach other people tolerance and acceptance of people who are different than they are. And so that, of course, had a profound influence on me, uh, as you might might imagine. And Joel, growing up in this environment, at what point and at what age did it actually click for you? Because I feel like now that I'm the father of an 18-year-old and a 15-year-old, more recently did it really sink in? Even though I, you know, we all as parents, we try to imprint everything we do. Sometimes we're doing it unintentionally in a negative way, but we try to make positive imprinting in our children's lives. At what point did it click for you? And you said, okay, I get this. This is part of who I am. And it's part of who I want to be for the rest of my life. Honestly, uh, let me just jump in and say that <laughs> before he answers that when Joel was born, Ellie Wiesel sent him a um, $100 bill. And I think Joel wanted to spend it before he was two years old. Sounds like my son. That is probably <laughs> true. I don't remember that exact instance or what I spent it on. But 
Probably a Lego set. It was probably that. But to, to answer your question, really not until later in my life, until I was, I was out of the home. You know, growing up, we grew up in, a, in an affluent town in, in the Northeast outside of Boston. And it was sort of a kind of keeping up with the Joneses type of place. And I think also early on, and, and hopefully I'm not the only one, maybe your, your son shares in this with me. When you're little, it's about you or you think it is. And you don't know not only the worldviews or experiences of other people, but you also don't know the world itself outside of your bubble and your upbringing. And so it's almost become, you know, it has become a joke in our family now, but my brother and I were not two of the four family members voting for that specific initiative growing up. And, and it wasn't until much later where I was living in Chicago after college, working as, as a strategy consultant, making good money and doing nothing in the way of giving. And, and I wanted to, to start. I wanted giving to be a part of my life. And, and immediately, because we had that as, as a part of our family growing up, that's kind of what I thought of and what popped to mind, that, that notion. And it's really what eventually led to, to me founding Percent Pledge. And what was that spark or was it over time that led you to the founding of Percent Pledge? Because it's, I mean, B2B marketing is difficult. Getting organizations to take your call. We talked about this a little bit offline, off air before we started and getting in front of that HR person or that people person, explaining to them why you, and it's still a newish type of company and venture, but you've had a lot of success. How did it come about? It came about over time, but there was a precipitous event and I'll probably remember it for, for the rest of my life. And it was a call that I had with my dad walking to the blue line in Chicago one night. It was, I think I had worked to maybe six or seven. I had been thinking about philanthropy, about giving back, about, Hey, okay. I've, I've now, I didn't think I'd made it, but I, I was financially secure. And how old were you then? I was about 25 at the time. So your brain was almost fully developed. <laughs> exactly. I wanted to give back and, you know, I wanted to be simple because I am a millennial and I didn't have a lot of time because I was working as a consultant. My firm was pretty small, didn't have any sort of giving programs in place. And I thought back to, to how we gave when we were growing up and then that kind of notion of that percentage had stuck with me. And for me, it had sort of clicked that as a young professional millennial, I have a subscription for everything now. Why don't I have a subscription for giving? And so when I was walking home that day, I just happened to owe my dad a call. It had been a couple of days. And that was one of the topics that I was sort of ruminating with. And we talked about it. He, I think when I initially brought up the notion of how he gave when I grew up, was laughing because I was a strong opponent growing up of it. And I said, hey, is there anything like this out there where I could give some percent of my income? I want it to be pretty quick and easy. I wanted it to be transparent as well. I wanted to see where the money was going, how it was being put to work. And I just thought he would give me the name of a couple websites or something like that. And he said, I don't know anything like this. And that was really the event that got me extremely excited about the idea, about maybe bringing this to life, about going to find out, which ended up kind of being a year-long journey, whether there was merit to it, whether my challenges with philanthropy were challenges that other people faced and and eventually led to Percent Pledge. And there's no other organization that does this, right? In the same way that you're doing it. Not that we found. Which is kind of shocking. I mean, I know that United Way years ago did like a matching program. It's different. And it's, and they obviously then redistribute funds, but it's very, very different. But this is, that's as close as to what I can think of in terms of kind of an ongoing kind of take it out of your paycheck subscription type of mechanism. Yeah. And there's even things like the pledge 1%, which is more of, of companies pledging like a, a percent of, of their total revenue. But for us and really how this started initially was, was at the individual level of saying, okay, can we, maybe transform the way that people give and make it a habit, a part of their lives, as opposed to, you know, when your buddy's running a marathon or, or something like that. And United Way is, I think, maybe the other, the other one that we've over time seen. And even some people have been like, oh, this is, 
this is like the United Way for for young people, or or even well, it's an easy way to think about it. Yeah, or I think one other person who was at a friend of mine who was at business school at, at University of Chicago percent pledge had come up in his business ethics class, like without me knowing about it. It's like one of the coolest moments to hear about that. It's a great and feeling. His professor explained it as the giving pledge for the rest of us. And I, I thought that was a good description. It's a great description. Who was your first client or customer? I don't know if you call them clients or customers. Yeah, it was a company called Spikeball that is... I know Spikeball. We have one in our house. It's the same thing I'm thinking about. Yes, it is. It's like can jam and all that stuff, right? Yeah, I think they call it like a mix of like volleyball and handball or something to that effect. And it was started in Chicago. They were on Shark Tank and one of my close friends used to run operations for them. And, and so I was connected to the founder and early on in our evolution, we started as just this technology for individuals. And we grew a little bit in our first three, four months it was working and people were giving, they were opening these impact reports that we send folks. And we said, all right, we need to pivot because it was just me self-funding things at the time. And unless we went viral, you know, I couldn't see us just growing one by one by one. Exactly. Yeah. So, so that was the pivot to selling to companies, institutions, organizations. Yeah. Which is very smart. And so I said, you know, Going viral is a prayer, not a plan. So let's go out and I interviewed about 50 companies and just did deep dive interviews with their C-suite or their like people team and said, hey, how do you approach philanthropy? How do you engage your employees? Today's employee in particular is probably more socially conscious than they have been ever before. How do you provide them opportunities to give back? How do you as an organization align with causes that you might be passionate about? And that's where we really saw the the need and opportunity to make that pivot is that most companies are not Fortune 500 companies with CSR teams. They're smaller companies, mid-sized firms that have employees and missions that should align or do align with some causes, but they don't really have the bandwidth or expertise to make that happen. So we said, all right, if Let's be that. Let's sort of be that kind of giving program in a box for everyone else. One more question before I pivot over to your cavelling dad. <laughs> Where's the line when it comes to the actual charities? So are you populating that list or is it user generated? And I ask because, you know, you could have one person who's like, well, I want my subscription to go to the NRA and another to say, I want my subscription to go to Planned Parenthood. Do you offer everything? Are you kind of non-biased, apolitical, or how is that list curated? Yeah, it's a little of both, which is probably a, a non-answer. And like initially- well, it's a tough question, so. Right. And initially, the whole concept being that we built this technology that makes it easy to donate some X percent of your monthly take-home or budget, a percent pledge, whatever causes, charities you care about. And then we automate your giving and send you- ongoing impact reports showing you where it's going, how it's being put to work. And so with that, initially, that focus on simplicity that I mentioned really came up in our research of this year or so when we didn't have any technology. It was just me going out and saying, okay, what are the hypotheses I have about how this should operate? Which of them are right? Which are wrong? And when we surveyed and interviewed a bunch of folks, we found out that that focus on transparency was the most important thing. And that's why those impact reports have really been our special sauce so far. But the other second most important piece was simplicity and ease is folks didn't know that notion of, I don't know where to start when it comes to philanthropy was the biggest thing we kept hearing. And so we said, all right, we'll go out and, and do the homework. And especially with millennials too, they tend to think about giving through the cause lens of if I asked you, where do you give back? You'd probably give me the name of a few charities because you kind of have your philanthropic identity. Yeah, I've got my favorites. There's certain things I'm very, for different reasons. Yeah, exactly. And it's just as likely that if I ask someone who's 25, 30, hey, where do you give back? What do you support? They'll tell me women's empowerment or veterans as opposed to- Or keep RBG alive. Exactly. I'd like that one to be one. Yeah. <laughs> that is its own cause and <laughs> charity altogether. Exactly. And so we went out and said, all right, let's- Let's do that homework. Let's make it easy. So we built these cause portfolios. They're like vetted charity mutual funds to say, all right, 
if people don't know where to start, they don't know how to research charities, we'll go out and do that legwork and give them these options that just make the giving process simpler for them, diversifies their impact a bit. And that still is a core component of what we do, but we have evolved to provide greater choice. And that has most notably taken its representation through our BYOP feature. So we built out the database of every chair in the U.S. and people can build your own portfolio, sort of our BYOB option. So there might be a few controversial things in there, right? There could be. Absolutely. But that's part of transparency and choice. And it's not for me or you to judge where someone wants to send their money, right? Right. And that's been- I think that's fair. What we found is let's provide that help And then if there's folks that are already connected to something, which a lot of people are already connected to certain causes, then we don't want to be exclusive at all in what they can support. So, Mark. I want to jump in and add something to what Joel said. And first of all, of course, I'm selling beyond what you can imagine. But I want to just say that I think Joel's being a little too modest because I think in reality that he may have picked up the notion and the mindset of what it means to give back much earlier, even earlier than he realizes. And I'll tell you why. I founded the Giving Back Fund in 1997 when you were 27. But Joel was six. And the very first client we had was the then captain of the Boston Celtics, Dee Brown. And the first sort of charity event that we had for Dee, it was Christmas time. And one of the poorer areas of Boston is known as Roxbury. And kids in Roxbury tend to be lower economic. And we picked one of the poorest schools in Roxbury. And Dee decided with his foundation that he wanted to buy Christmas gifts for every kid in that school. And so we went out to Toys R Us and we purchased 350 toys. And we brought them back to our basement in Wellesley. And the boys and I, Joel and his brother, wrapped those 350 toys because the B. Brown was busy as a Celtic, didn't have time to wrap the toys. And then the next day we went to this school and D dressed up as Santa Claus and the boys were there and D handed out toys to every kid in that school who otherwise would not have gotten a Christmas gift. Well, that was followed by, we founded a foundation for Doug Flutie, the quarterback, who's pretty famous around Boston. And then had several events for Doug that Joel was a part of. One very famous event where you got to go out 50 yards and actually catch the Hail Mary pass that Doug became famous for by donating $1,000 to his charity. Well, so Joel participated in that, went out 50 yards, caught the ball. And one by one, he had these experiences at six years old. And I think they had to have had some impact. There's no doubt. And let me just tell you one other add-on to that that I think is important for your listeners to know. So Michael Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York, I was once privileged to be in a room with a lot of billionaires, and he was the keynote speaker. And he got up on stage and said, you know, when I was seven years old growing up in Malden, Massachusetts, we were very poor. And one Saturday afternoon, I saw my father writing a check on the dining room table. So I climbed up on the chair looked over his shoulder, and he was writing a check for $25 to the NAACP. And I said, Dad, what are you doing? We can't afford this. We're poor. And he looked at me and he said, Mikey, we can't afford not to do this. And then Mikey, Mr. Bloomberg, looked out at the billionaires and he said, from that $25 check, I've given away $4.5 billion. And now he's running for president. Right. So I think the example of philanthropy does have an impact on kids. And even though Joel may not have realized at such a young age that it was taking root, I think it did. And when you talk about the early days and when you started the Giving Back Fund, when you look at back at 1997, you look at the Giving Back Fund today, is it the same vision, albeit probably in a different form, as what you had hoped for? Yes, it is the same vision. The vision was to bring best practices to philanthropy for a wide range of people who had been creating foundations, athletes and entertainers, and really not observing best practices, not because they were bad people, but because they just didn't know them. And so 
the idea of the Giving Back Fund was to create an organization that would help people who wanted to do good, do good right. And that's very important when you're handling public money, as Joel will tell you, that you have a sacred bond when someone donates to a charity to make sure that that dollar that they donate really goes for the charitable purpose that was stated and not to overhead and not to frivolous things. And so there were too many celebrities who had had foundations that imploded from mismanagement. And when I learned about this, I thought, how unfortunate that people who want to do good don't know how to do it right. And so I created the Giving Back Fund to create a mechanism that would create an economy of scale savings so that less money went to overhead and more to charity and that everything that was done was done scrupulously in line with IRS rules and regulations and standards so that the public would have complete faith in every single foundation that we manage and not have to worry at all that any dollars that they donate aren't going to the causes that were advertised. How did you gain both access and how did you have the credibility to be able to both borrow equity, but also get the participation and excitement from celebrities and athletes? That's not easy. No. And it came about through cold calling. And I hate cold calling, (laughs) but I cold called Bob Costas, the great 29 Emmy award winning broadcaster. I cold called him and got him to be the first chairman of my board. I cold called Lee Steinberg, who at the time was the greatest agent in all of sports history, Jerry Maguire, and got him to give us one of our first clients, Ben Roethlisberger. So it it really happened by, like anything in life, you have to have a little luck, and then you have to turn that luck into something worthwhile and something good. So I think between luck and pluck, that's how it started. And when you start with Doug Flutie and Dee Brown, and then the next two clients were two young teenagers in love named Brittany and Justin. You probably know who they are. Yep. So that kind of gave us a little bit of a rocket start. We actually announced Justin Timberlake's foundation at the White House at the time with President Mrs. Clinton and the same Britney Spears. We announced it at at a giant press conference in Los Angeles with hundreds of people attending. So that brought some attention to, to us. And that's how we began. But like anything, it takes a lot of perseverance to get a company to work. And it hasn't been easy. It's 23 years now of a lot of hard work, but it's been very gratifying. And especially gratifying to see my son come into this field and extend the work that I've been able to do to so many other opportunities. Well, we're in a studio aptly named Grit, and I can't think of a a father-son duo or a family that has more grit. And, you know, the truth is, is that you might not agree with this, but you both clearly can handle rejection really well because you have to be able to handle rejection to be in the quote-unquote business that you're in. Cold calling, people saying no. Actually, an elder rabbi in my synagogue recently said to me that it's relentless but polite pursuit when we're talking about fundraising and, and our capital campaign. And it sounds like that's something that you both have ample amounts of. Well, Joel handles it much better than I do. I've never really gotten used to it handling rejection well, I could stand to learn some lessons from him because he handles it much better. Is that true, Joel? Interestingly, I, it's like almost a little emotional hearing his story because now one of the byproducts of doing what I do now is, you know, I have a much closer relationship to my dad and also a different one where like it's gone kind of from father, son to evolved also now have mentor and mentee. And so much now of our relationships are, him saying, you know, how are things going? How can I help? And this is honestly, I think the first time I've sat down and listened in full to to his founding story and all of the similarities. And like the, when we were getting going to a certain extent, we have this marketplace where, where we have these charity partners that we work with. We have donors, individuals, whether they're individuals or employees, and also the companies that we help. And early on, we needed the charities to come first so that we could have options on the platform for people to give. And I just built out a list of uh, 150 charities from that had the highest ratings across the like normal vetting Charity sites. Navigator and all that stuff. Right? Yeah, I looked at GiveWell and GuideStar and Charity Navigator and picked out the top charities, put them in a spreadsheet according to what cause area they 
focused on and then just cold called them. And that's how we built our initial partner list. And so the, the stories of his cold calling, I think he, we didn't talk to Bob Costas or, or anyone of, of that nature, but they had that similarity. And even what he mentioned about doing good, right. It's probably a better way to explain the offering and the way we work with companies now than I even have so far, which is that these organizations, philanthropy is either already a part of their culture and employee experience, but it's ad hoc and maybe it's run by a cares team or people team trying to plan stuff off the sides of their desk or their company that's grown fast. And like I was even just talking to the VP of people at a fast growing media company here in New York and she's sort of become a mentor of mine as well and was saying how for them they grew so fast but don't have anything in place. They have really no system or way for their employees to support what they care about. And so they're kind of the other use case where either it's a company that wants best practices or that is looking now as in philanthropy has become so important to attract and retain today's talent is looking to build something from scratch and and wants the right the right tools and the right expertise that that fits for their needs their company size to to do it right to do good right for the companies that don't have purpose or give back as part of their business model because many do increasingly more now than ever they are searching for ways to hone in on something both for commercial reasons because like you said Gen Z will be the largest generation actually starting this year, but also millennials, obviously, they care more about companies doing right than better products, right? I think that you're doing kind of a double service in that way. So you probably met Elie Wiesel when you were younger. I don't know if we ever met. I know he gave me this incredibly nice $100 that you blew. $100. <laughs> and a Lego set. <laughs> so after I built the Millennium Falcon with that yeah. Lego set and but for my bar mitzvah, he gave me a really beautiful inscription in a copy of Night, which I think, I think I had like just read it in school. In, yeah, in I think it's, like an, it's probably like an eighth grade thing. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And so that was really powerful. And, and I probably didn't even at the time understand kind of how grateful I should have been for that gift. But even that and then the other, the other story that I was remembering today when I was trying to think back on some of growing up around the Giving Back Fund. And my dad was with the the Brittany and Justin when they started their foundation. Oh, and she was a teenager. And I was right around the age where I was like, oh my God, Britney Spears, uh-huh. this is incredible. And he took me to one of her concerts because they had were done some charity event earlier in the day. And I got to meet her. And I don't think I said a single word because I was like starstruck. Yeah, your mouth's wide open. Right, right. And and then the next week, I hurt my eye really badly playing hockey. And I had like an eye patch on it. I looked like a pirate for a couple of weeks. And I got in the mail this signed picture of her saying, Joel, get well soon, Brittany. And it was like... At the time, I my most prized possession is the most incredible thing ever. Did, did you put it in your locker? I put it in my bedroom and it actually stayed there for like 17 years. <laughs> and then just recently, my mom and just moved. And then you broke, your, you broke your arm for Justin. That's Remember? true. That's true. <laughs> I, I took you to Justin's concert and you broke your arm just before the concert. I did. At a skate park in New York. We didn't have any shin pads or anything. And my mom was like, just... He's not going to do anything. Just let him in. We're only here for a day in New York for this event for Justin. And so the first ramp I went up, I thought I I just watched Brink at the time, if you're familiar with the movie. Sure, yeah. So I thought I knew what I was doing. I didn't. I had a compound fracture, so I literally had half my arm dangling down. The other half was where it should be. Just for the record, this is like the exact opposite of your prototypical neurotic Jewish family. My mother had been like, there's no way unless I like put you in all this padding that you're going to go into that skate park. That came later. So <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> for the rest of my life, I, I was like bubble boy after that. <laughs> I, I was bubble boy. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So I, I broke my arm immediately. We went to Mount Sinai. We got it fixed. And the stuff, the anesthesia didn't work. So I, like, I gave my parents a play-by-play of, the, of them setting my arm. But then it worked later. So it's like we that get movie to, Awake. Exactly. Yeah. So we get to Justin's event in New York. And same way I met, you know, I go to meet him backstage because through my dad and the anesthesia just kicked in. So I was in a wheelchair, 
groggy with my arm like this. And like, he thought I was like a make a wish kid or something. It was like the nicest person ever. And for that time, I, it wasn't that I couldn't speak because I was starstruck. I couldn't speak because you're wasted. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. I'm sure there are plenty of other people quite like that for different reasons. Exactly. Oh my God. That's how the giving gene got implanted. <laughs> I just have to go back to this Ellie Wiesel. I don't know how we went from Ellie Wiesel to Britney Spears to Justin Timberlake to anesthesia, to, but it's, it's, it's a great, it's a great kind of thread. So as a son, actually of a Holocaust survivor and an Austrian one, my mom will be 89 in a few months. God bless her. Wow. I'm just so interested and so curious about your work, Mark, with Ellie Wiesel and the foundation at that in and of itself, in the same way that Mark is a blessing for you, Joel, and vice versa. I'm, that also is a blessing in my mind to be able to work for someone and with someone like that for so many years. What was that like? It was almost beyond description. I just gave an hour-long lecture about Ellie at a Renaissance weekend that I was invited to, and it was so emotional for me. I showed clips of his Nobel Prize acceptance speech and clips of his speech to Reagan, President Reagan, telling him not to go to Bitburg, which really elevated Ellie to a, a stratosphere of saying that to an American president when he won the Congressional Gold Medal. It was the greatest blessing I, I could have imagined in my professional life was getting to be his doctoral student and then his colleague. And then I ended up creating a foundation for Ellie, which still exists to this day that we created just before he won the Nobel Peace Prize. And that really gave me the idea for the Giving Back Fund, because when you win the Nobel Peace Prize, you become a, a worldwide celebrity. And I realized that you could link celebrity and wealth and leverage both on behalf of philanthropy, on behalf of a cause. And so in creating Ellie's foundation and then having him win the Nobel Prize, I was able to literally call anybody in the world. And if I said I was calling on behalf of Ellie Wiesel, they'd return my call. If I said it's Mark Pollack, they wouldn't. So, you know, well, I would well, today they to will. the local courthouse and change my name to Ellie Wiesel. <laughs> I'm teasing. But I did realize how powerful celebrity is as a, a lever. And so until he died two and a half years ago, we remained close for all those years, close to 39 years. And as you can imagine, there aren't many people in the world who have accomplished what Ellie Wiesel accomplished in his life. And being able to be one of thousands of people who were close to him and close to him on a professional level and as a student was a, a tremendous experience that there's almost no words to describe it. And how are you feeling right now, given this increased level of bias attacks and hate and animus and divisiveness? Well, I think if Ellie were alive, he would be horrified because he devoted the whole rest of his life after he survived Auschwitz to combating that. And on so many levels, in so many places around the world, Ellie Wiesel and Muhammad Ali died three weeks apart. And the world lost two giants of moral stature. And I think we desperately need more Ellie Wiesel's and Muhammad Ali's in the world right now to bring us together because it's a really serious time right now that I haven't seen in my lifetime. Just too much hatred and too much discord. And that's what Ellie lived his life to oppose. Off air, I, I'd mentioned I'm president of my local temple and I never imagined I'd be spending as much time and resource devoted towards security measures as I have been, when I feel like that time should really be devoted towards driving membership and engagement and programming and everything that makes us such a strong Jewish community. And I wish I had an answer. I don't. It, marching is not an answer. It is a tactic. It is a way to raise awareness. But there's got to be more that we can do. And it's not just Pittsburgh and Poway and Muncie recently. I'm genuinely scared and I'm afraid. And I just wonder how Ellie Wiesel, if he was still with us, how he would address it outside of just words. What else can we do? I wish I could ask him. I really do. I miss him every single day. The world is a less beautiful place without him in it. And I mean, you ask very important questions. I don't know. We have to find a way. And what Ellie always said is the greatest danger to the world is fanaticism, is believing that your way is the only right way. And we, we have a world right now where there's a tremendous amount of fanaticism. You know, if you just look, turn on TV, 
in the last couple of days. It's very scary. Yeah. And the false narratives drive that fanaticism to levels that we've never seen. And that's why what Joel's doing and what I'm doing, trying to bring more kindness into the world, because really giving is all about kindness and helping others. I think the more you can do that, the more you push away all the evil in the world. When you help somebody, even your enemy, you open up their heart to an aspect of being human that is particularly human. To help another person and to be kind is something that is a unique characteristic of a human being. And so the work that Joel's doing through Percent Pledge and that we do through the Giving Back Fund, I think does counteract a lot of that bad stuff that's out there. And so I'm grateful that we're able to do this. And that's a big motivator for why we do what we do. I've long been saying that the goal is to replace fear with hope, but not hope in a way that you're just praying something will happen, but there's an optimism and there's an activism behind what we're trying to do together collectively. And I have a lot of faith in this next generation. I think it's, I hate the word authentic, but I'll use it because I can't think of a better word, but it is probably the most authentic, most driven generation that I've seen when it comes to societal value and understanding how to give back. They have more heart than I've ever seen. And that gives me a lot of hope. Well, I'll tell you about one of our foundations that Joel's very involved with and knows the husband of the founder has been one of his very dear mentors called Nexus, the Nexus Global Youth Summit. It's a group of 6,000 young people in their 20s and 30s from 70 countries around the world who are the sons and daughters of wealth holders combined with social activists. They have a combined net worth of $700 billion and they've come together and they're one of the foundations in the Giving Back Fund, to change the world. And they have a big annual summit every year at the United Nations and another one at the Institute of Peace in Washington every year, and then summits all around the world, literally countries all over the world. These young people have bonded together in this group called Nexus to do all the good things that you're talking about. And they bring me great hope. They organized when the Bahama earthquake happened a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago, they organized faster than governments and brought literally Black Hawk helicopters and 50 vessels of supplies to the Bahamians to help them out. They have groups on climate change and anti-slave trafficking and impact investing. This group gives me great hope. And Joel can speak to it more because he He's very involved as well. But the Nexus Global Youth Summit is one of the real shining lights in our world. Sounds like they need more attention. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's very true. And, and I think what you were mentioning about philanthropy being, I don't know if maybe vehicle is the right word, but, but a way to, to bring about some of that greater degree of hope. And that's a lot of kind of the bet we're placing as well, is to say, okay, what my dad mentioned earlier about how he started to give back because it makes you happy, that that's real. You know, the benevolent halo is a real effect when you give back. There even recently was a scientific study that found an actual neural link between giving and increased happiness. And so it is something where when you do give back, it, it does make you happy. It's not just a feeling, it's science. And for us, it's to say, okay, if if that's the case, and, and giving back does have that power to change a person's physiology, to, to make them happier. And I think the byproduct being if we are happy, then we'll maybe be a little bit less divisive, less closed-minded with one another, more open to other points of views, more sharing and caring with, with each other. Then, okay, how can we make giving a, a habit, which was sort of like the initial inspiration we had is like, it's not like we invented recurring giving with percent pledge by any means, but we said, all right, can we make it really simple and easy for, for young people that maybe don't think like you have to have your name on a library or have a lot of money to be a philanthropist. It's not true. It's, it's not some sea change to make giving a part of your life. It's one less drink at the bar each week gets you to our average pledge is about $32 a month across our community, which is I was going to ask you that. There you go. One okay. less drink at the bar each week. Sure. And, and so that's or part like two of, Starbucks. Exactly. 
Well, just an extra shot latte will get yeah, you there. Exactly. It's the red eye. Yeah. And like we've even shown that during our onboarding process, when people are picking their giving amounts, we show them not only what impact they create with real impact stats from our partner charities, but also what they might have to give up. They're, they're one less. And so that they can understand and help contextualize for folks that it isn't some sea change to make giving a part of your life. Anyone, no matter what your means, can be a philanthropist, can, can make giving a habit. And then the other piece that feeds into that is the feedback loop and the transparency. And that's what's been really, I'm just so grateful that we've been able to kind of build this model and we have so much longer to go. But in terms of kind of fulfilling our goals, when we send people those pledge reports that we do every every couple of weeks, it's essentially a, a report delivered right to your inbox that's showing you how good of a person you are. And and it keeps people giving. And, you know, we have a 90% plus average monthly retention month over month because that was really the change is it's not, again, like we invented recurring giving, but we said, all right, well, what if we, instead of some of the status quo, which is kind of for better or worse, being neglectful of monthly donors, recurring donors, people thinking, oh, we already have them. They'll keep giving. Or when you do communicate with those donors or asking them for more, or in some cases, intentionally not communicating with them, just hoping that zombie donations will keep rolling in. And so we said, all right, let's go against that. And let's make sure that people know where they're giving, where it's going, what the impact is is being made. That's really how we work with our partner charities as well, is to make sure that those pledge reports have a really high degree of storytelling because folks want to know, hey, this is the impact that it made of, of this person or or this event. And so since inception, how much has been donated to charities to date, roughly? I don't know if I know the exact number. I probably should have. I think a little over 100 grand or so at this point. Great. And, and you just started pretty recently. Yeah, I think we almost are coming up on our two-year mark and now at 20 companies or so and, and have made that switch to working with, with companies about a year and a half ago. And initially it was just the technology and the platform that we personalize for each company we work with. We would then build out a custom cause portfolio giving option based on what causes align with them as a brand. And then it's just sort of evolved over there over time as now we also have our volunteer concierge and do some of the more experiential side of giving because initially the company piece was a, a tactic. It, it was a delivery. And do you system. have any venture funding or not yet? We do. We had actually our initial funding. A large portion of that is shared with, they give me Mac funds, initial funding. Um, and part of that was tell them about that coincidence. Cause it's one of the most remarkable coincidences between our two companies. Originally the giving back fund was supposed to be a, I, I think a, a for-profit or some sort of hybrid model where it was both for and nonprofit. And so one of the, the initial investor in, in that, which just ended up being kind of a, a major donation or benefactor for the giving back fund was an old family friend of ours. And when I was starting Percent Pledge, my dad had sort of told me about that, of what the intention was initially, what the Giving Back Fund grew into being. And with Percent Pledge, we actually executed on that that hybrid model where we have both kind of a for and nonprofit component to to our structure. And it just it wasn't around back then. Now there was some other precedent or other companies that we could look to, to try and use that model, which has been great for us. And so when I was starting to fundraise, I went back to, to that family friend and I've probably talked to him. We've known them for my entire life. I probably had four or five conversations total before this one, but said initially, Hey, could you help me find people that would want to invest in something like this? And then also said, Hey, by the way, what you were trying to do with my dad all that time ago, I figured it out. And and we have that model. Would it be something that you're interested in? And the answer was yes. And and he became our largest investor and angel in all of now the, the fundraising we've done. That's great. I love hearing stories like that. And he was our 20 years ago, the same guy helped launch the Giving Back Fund. And, and 20 years later, he launched Percent Pledge. Wow. Before I forget, Mark, 
Have you read the book, The Choice, by Dr. Edith Eager? The Choice by Haim Pota? No, it's actually, it's a very common name of a book, I guess. No, it's Dr. Eager. She's a Holocaust survivor as well. She actually lives in LA and she wrote this book called The Choice. No, but I've heard her name. Yeah, I would highly recommend it. I actually read excerpts of it at our Rosh Hashanah service in my address. And it's just a very different, it reminds me of Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, but in a interestingly, a very enthralling kind of, even though some very tough stories in there, she survives a couple different camps. It's written in such a beautiful way in the way she tells the story of choices and having inner strength and whatnot is incredibly uplifting. And it's hard to say that about any Holocaust book, but this is an incredible book. So I would highly recommend it. I'll read it. And I knew Victor Frankl. He was an amazing man too. Yeah. And that's a tough book to get through, but I think something everybody should read. That should be required reading as well. And I didn't read that until I was in college because a professor of mine said, you have to read this and I'm forever grateful. I will read it. Thank you. So I have a kind of a more macro question for you guys as we kind of wind down on this. And I know we could be speaking for hours and hours. Both of you have a lot to be grateful for in your lives. And I know, Joel, you're kind of, you're more of the starting out right now. You're still on that entrepreneurial side. Who do you want to thank outside of your dad? Because we know that's implied, but if you want to thank him again, here's a good chance to do it again. But for Joel and you, Mark, as well, who is it that you'd like to thank on this podcast for helping you succeed and continue to succeed and give back in the way you've given back. Dad, you want me to go or you want to go first? Yeah, you go first. Okay. I'll think about it. All right, I'll start things off. I think the immediate one next to dad would be my mom, who has been, I think, probably the, the other most closely kind of person in our audience of the percent pledge journey, watching it, probably worrying about it as much as I do. Except um, for that time she let you go to that skate park. Exactly. Exactly. And I think with a with regards to percent pledge, that is where the Jewish mother stuff really does come into play. And and so while my dad has been the person who I've I've looked towards for so much of the education of finding out how to kind of go through this journey and start something and try and build it. She's been the the emotional support and making sure that I don't go insane. And my my brother Danny, my girlfriend Emily, who been with for five years, and she not only designed our logo and has probably done more on a pro bono basis than anyone else for Percent Pledge. I've tried to pay her or hire her. She won't do it. You could ask her to marry you. I mean, if you want to do that here, you can. Well, is that... <laughs> Even that is is Do on. that, Joel. Do she, that. <laughs> it's only been five years, Joel. I know. Well, that, uh, trust me, I want to, but it's, <laughs> our conversations have been, she's going to tell me when she would say yes or when she wants me to, and then I will hop to fair. when that That's time fair. is right. <laughs> That's fair. But those people, and then I think for me, you know, our team, Eric, Victor, the original team that, that I built Percent Pledge out with, Pat, Colleen, Aaron, because I'm not technical myself, and... Mark Ankler, Neil Sales Griffin, who are mentors in the 1871 community. I, I don't know if you're too familiar with it, but 1871 is this kind of, I don't even know how to describe it, incubator, co-working space. Is this part of the merchandise, Mark? It is. Yeah, I saw that when I was out there. And it's cool. that's where we've built Percent Pledge. It's still where the team is. That's where we kind of founded it. I think I joined a month after we had launched I wish I had known before I was there for that conference. I know. Well, that was, and that community as well has been so incredible in that there's this creative tailwind almost when you're there trying to build something and work amongst other people that are doing really incredible things. Yeah, it's a cool space. It's it's a creator space for sure. Exactly. And so that's been the other really monumental piece of, of what we've built. And I mean, there's a million other people and places that I could thank, but that I'll, uh, I'll, take I'll give you your go. Gratitude is good. Okay, Mark, Dad. To me, gratitude is the single most important ingredient in happiness in the world. And the people who are the most gracious and appreciative of things in life are the happiest. And you can't succeed at anything in life alone. You have to have help. And over the 23 years that I've been blessed to run the Giving Back Fund, I've had help from innumerable sources, too many to mention. But I think I trace much of my success. 
success in life back to the inspiration that I got as a a 23-year-old graduate student being privileged to sit at the feet of Elie Wiesel. And he, he played such a large role in being a role model for me and opening my eyes to what is possible in the world to accomplish. There's only one Elie Wiesel, but having him as an example for so many years and as something to aspire to sort of live out the teachings that he dispensed so generously, I would have to say that I owe him a tremendous debt of gratitude. Yeah, I can't even imagine. So the best way to find, it's the percentpledge.com, right? Just percentpledge.org. We'll get you there on social media at percentpledge across every platform. Got it. And we're going to talk about my company too when we're done here. And the Giving Back Fund, best way to find the Giving Back Fund? Givingback.org. Very simple, givingback.org. We were both domain fortunate. I like that expression, domain fortunate. So when I first started my agency almost 15 years ago now, it was originally called Quitkin, and I went to go get quitkin.com, and it was a knockoff mail enhancement Viagra prescription drug site. Somebody took it. So somebody squatted and took the name. I could swear, even to this day, my brother doesn't listen to this podcast. That was my brother, but he denied it. And I had a couple of crazy cousins. Mike, was it you guys? They denied it. So for the longest time, I had to deal with that. People go to quitkin.com and it was like Viagra, right? Which is kind of embarrassing when you're trying to start a company. So we had to be Quitco. And then I had to wait till 2013 to regain control over that name. It was signed under a fake name. So you're very lucky to be a domain fortunate because I was domain unfortunate. I think we'll end on that then. <laughs> that sounds good. Well, thank Joel you. and Mark, thank you again for being on. It was thank great. you very much. I really appreciated this opportunity to be on with Joel and, and to share our stories. And we're very grateful to you. And Mark, I hope to meet you in person next time I'm out in LA. I would love that. All right. Thanks, Thanks. guys. Thanks. This has been an episode of Brand on Purpose with Aaron Quickkin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of entrepreneurs and senior leaders who make it their brand's mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing team, including the voice you never hear, producer extraordinaire Lindsay Hand, and the always on point associate producer Katrina Walkley, who touches every aspect of this podcast. Learn more about our show at brandonpurpose.com. Follow our Instagram at the Bop Podcast. And learn more about our host at AaronQuicken.com. Mm-hmm.